Dear Stop Saying Woke listeners, there are a few things we'd like to acknowledge. First, at the time of the recording of this episode, George Floyd was still alive and the current climate of social unrest had not begun. Later in the episode, you will hear that we make a reference to the statement, I can't breathe, and we reference back to Eric Garner. Now, of course, knowing what we know, we would also make a reference back to George Floyd. We just wanted to acknowledge and name that we haven't overlooked him, that we are thinking about him and his family, uh, and that we are active participants in the Black Lives Matter movement. And everything had not yet begun when we recorded this episode. We also want to name that at the time of recording, we were inspired by a conversation that I, Rebecca, had with an acquaintance of mine. And since the recording of this episode, we did receive permission to use the reference to this individual and to discuss their conversation. And so you'll hear me say that we might have to cut this portion because I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use it. So we wanted to openly name that we do have permission to use all of the content that we're using it, which is why you are able to hear it. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoy. Stop saying woke. Made by the founders of Arctic LLC, Stop Saying Woke is an outlet for deep dives into anti-racist education, side remarks, and a place for people of color to feel seen. A call-in for white folks, Stop Saying Woke is both a directive and a plea for well-meaning white folks who are ready to graduate from talking about it to being about it. All right. All right. Here we are. We're uh, kicking it, doing some recording. So I think this week, to be clear, listeners, what happens is we have a list of things that we're interested in having conversations about. Because So the origins of this podcast, short story break, um, is that essentially it came out of our really long phone conversations. So Shay and I would just get on the phone and we would talk for like two, two and a half hours, and we would just go. We would just deep dive into all type of things, usually regarding some version of oppression and injustice. It would start most likely based on a story about like a client that we were working with or something that we had heard about um, or something in the news, and then we would just like go off. And so from there, we were kind of like, oh maybe we should have a podcast and share all of our thoughts because like, this is just something that we would do anyway. We would just talk. So we might as well set it up so that other people could hear what we have to say. So that's really how stop saying woke was born. So we usually, you know, we have a list of things that we're interested in talking about and then we kind of just start talking. And so we figure out, what the podcast is about after it's over, usually. <laughs> so after some editing. So we had a request, actually, from a social worker who was like, I would love to hear a podcast episode all about the history of harm of mental health professionals on black and brown bodies. 
well. Whew. Shay and I are both trauma therapists, if you don't know this. So, right, we're both, like, just thinking about it. We're both, like, sucking our teeth. And we're irritated. And also part of me wants to be, like, I would love to talk about, like, the languaging around even that question. Because it sounds <laughs> uh, sort of pornographic. Mm. Right? Where it's, like... Please, like, talk about how therapists have, like, harmed black and brown bodies, mm. right? Which I'm sure that's not how the person meant it, right? No. But, like, the fetishization slash exotization of, like, black and brown bodies in every capacity is always there. Yeah. And I want to be mindful, especially with you, Rebecca, as, like, as my co-host. But, like, let's just take this, like, little trip down memory lane of all this harm that's happened, Right. You're like snarling your lip, which I get. So I think it's important to talk about, but the way we talk about it is also important because we're not here to make Rebecca rip it, rip open her rib cage <laughs> and like tell us all of the things that have happened, right? So that us white folks can get a better understanding of all this harm. Like that's not why we're here. True story. And I, so I will say that I think the place that this person was coming from um was really more story time so this uh individual and i were having a conversation about their search for a supervisor and um i also i'm going to make the story story short and sweet because i don't actually have permission for this from this individual to share it and so it also might end up getting cut but um essentially they were looking for a supervisor. They were working with somebody who essentially had a white lady tantrum and then fired them. Like they were like, you know, we shouldn't work together um, because the supervisor suggested something that was inappropriate. And um, around it, basically there was a suggestion of like experimenting on their black and brown clients um, or like taking an opportunity to recenter the conversation to make it about the mental health professional and not about the client, which is gross and happens all the time. Therapeutic self-disclosure, people. Um, and so the the supervisee called them out and was like, actually, that doesn't sound safe for my clients. And so there was like a white supremacy, right? Like white fragility meltdown with, you know, a lot of white lady rage and... So I think this person is hoping that there are folks out there who are willing to have conversations and who are willing to teach well-meaning white ladies about the history of the social work profession. And also, yes, we don't need to fetishize black and brown bodies. Yeah, I mean... I'm like, I see you have things on your mind, Shay. Go. I Let do. them out. I do. And I think... My issue with it where I'm standing is, so there's two levels of conversation that I want to have. And so for folks who are not in our profession, they need to know the background of social work and therapy and all these things and how they have impacted black and brown bodies. So given where I have my own issues with that, is this initial query is coming from somebody who's in the mental health field with 
an issue with their professor or their supervisor or whatever phrase you want to use, somebody who is above them in the field. These are two humans who should know the background already. Mm -hmm. This person who's like, my supervisor is like disregarding this and telling me that I am blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Your supervisor is also just like ignoring the history of the profession. I think let's start with a conversation that's just like, real basic history and you know let's talk about yeah let's go basic because i know it will get deep yep and from there i think we can make some connections that will probably be useful for folks in the field as well okay i feel really confident starting with some history of psychology I don't feel mm. as confident starting with like the history of social work because I don't know those dates as well. Got you. Okay. So in terms of starting with like the history of psychology, what I mean is we're going to start with psychiatry. Oh. Woof. Woof. Because initially, this work of the mind of the brain was a medical field. Like That's why someone like Freud, who was a psychiatrist started and like his student young and it was this idea of like which was really innovative and beautiful and actually really important for what we do now is like is what happens to me when I'm younger does it impact me as I grow up it feels really fucking basic now to be like uh yeah (laughs) of course and though how many times do bad things happen to children And Mm -hmm. parents are like, oh, well, they're not going to remember. Right. So, like, yes, really basic. And also, though, Mm. folks still behave as though we don't already know the answer to that question. Yeah. Which is what happens to you when you're younger impacts how you behave when you're older. So if we're going to start with the whiteness of, like, this field, which we should because it's the dominant narrative that we hear. Is someone like Freud came up and was like, hey, what happens to you when you're a child impacts your behavior as you grow up? And everyone's like, oh, my fucking God, mind blown. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are so many other cultures that already in their storytelling recognize that what happens to you when you're a child impacts how you are when you grow up. So Freud was a big deal in terms of, like, European realization about this, but not, like, worldwide culturally a pioneer about this. So Freud came up with these ideas, and then we decided as a community and as a culture that we're going to look into people's childhoods and we're going to fix them. We're going to figure out where things went wrong, and we're going to correct it. But weirdly, everything's going to be framed around what the child did wrong. Like, this child got stuck on the anal phase or stuck on the oral (laughs) phase, which everyone's, like, giggling, including Rebecca, (laughs) which is, like... Oh, no, I'm laughing because that's ridiculous, but... No. (laughs) Yes. Other humans are going to be, like, what does that even mean? Like, it doesn't mean anything, right? 
Because putting the blame on a child for them getting stuck in where they're feeling is absurd currently. But Freud was the first European white guy to consider maybe our upbringings influence who we are as beings as we age. But capitalism. So even though children are important in how they grow and how they grow up and how they develop, they're still really useful workers, particularly if their parents are poor. So those kids are still going to go to work in the factories or in the mines or whatever it is that those children need to do because they need to earn their worth. And I feel like at some point that leads into the development of social work. It does. Or I'm like, maybe, maybe these children don't need to earn their keep in the sense of like keeping their fingers. Yes. Well, and I also just want to make a note towards the education field that if Mm -hmm. we look at the history of American education, it is entirely tied in with, um, with this identification that like, yes, we know that what happens to children when they're young impacts them. And also we need them to do valuable things. Mm -hmm. And so if we talk about, for example, like the school year, right, that children are out during the summer. Mm -hmm. Now, why are children out during the summer? Children are not out during the summer because originally folks were like, we just want them to have fun and frolic. No, they were most useful at that time in uh, working, particularly if we're talking about like agriculture, you know, so if we're looking at when we plant to when we harvest, that's the time when children are needed. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they're out of school. You know. And so if we think about like spring break and how spring break happens in Marchish. Because they're planting. Well, yeah. Because they're busy planting. And so people weren't sending their kids to school anyway because they needed them. Right? Or if we talk about the history of music education. So for example, all children, most children, I'm going to say like probably 90, I don't know the percentage now, 97%, 96% of children receive music education in elementary school versus, you know, 14% receive dance education. Um, why is this? This is not because Americans deeply value music. No. In music education, in elementary school you learn how to play the recorder the reason that you learn how to play the recorder is to develop fine motor skills in order to be more skillful and useful in factory work so like if we think about the history also of education um and how it is blended with capitalism with american capitalism right the two things are inextricably linked they are one thing um so yes and so freud is is starts asking these questions about what happens to people um or like if something happens to you when you're a kid is that impactful um and it's sort of it's sort of madness when we think about the precedent that freud set just in his behavior Mm -hmm. um with his clients you know that he would see his clients every day all of them were women he would use cocaine i don't know i don't remember if he gave them cocaine but he definitely was using cocaine all the time uh, and he would have sex with them. Some of them, some of the time, but yeah. So also let's think about that, like psychiatrist, mental health professional. And then you think about the way that, you know, women were treated for hysteria, quote unquote, and given orgasms by their doctor. So already the history of 
mental health professionals just starting with Freud mm-hmm. is not great in the ways in which it's impacting the client. Mm-hmm. Well, and we can even look at like the ethics codes, right? We're like psychiatrists are never, ever, ever allowed to have non-professional relationships with their clients, no matter how long. Because the history of psychiatry has so much a history of exploiting and abusing that privilege that no psychiatrist can have any non-professional relationship with their clients ever. Whereas if you look at social work or counselors, usually the limit is at least two years, which is we're not endorsing having non-professional relationship with clients, but when you don't look have at, sex with your clients, just don't I do just it. Need to say that. Don't have sex with your clients. Okay, moving on. Ever, but this idea that, like, as we'll get into, I'm sure later in future episodes, like you're gonna have this intensely intimate relationship with this person, and then when they're done working with you, they're dead to you. It's a weird place to be. That is weird, but it's based on white supremacy in the sense that relationships can be codified based on financial interactions and when the financial interaction is over the relationship is over yes regardless of the harm to the client and i feel like it's also based on white men having this belief that there's no possible way that once a person stops being your client that you could not harm them through engaging them in sexual interaction right like that's just completely impossible. Unnecessary. <laughs> definitely not necessary. <laughs> definitely, not at all. Definitely not called for. No. Absolutely not called for. So, of course, ethics are based around protecting people from this white male instinct to penetrate. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Which, and, yeah, go ahead. well, I was just going to say, and codes of ethics are also based on the history of harm. Absolutely. Because, you know, the, the truth is that white male therapists did do that mm-hmm. with their clients. Yeah. And so there's also that. But what's interesting now for me that I know we've talked about is the field overwhelmingly, especially in master's level practitioner, like overwhelmingly most of the people practicing are female identifying humans with master's degrees. But we are still held to the same ethics codes, but we're treated the same way. Yeah. Well, and there's also like, um, you know, we talk about like a client's right to autonomy, at least in the social work code of ethics, right? The client's right to self-determination is at the very top. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I definitely understand why when we talk about termination with a client, right, that therapists have power in the relationship. And so it makes sense that it's not appropriate to kind of engage your client after you've already terminated because your client for a variety of reasons might feel beholden mm-hmm. to engaging with you when they don't have to. And so it makes a lot of sense why there's that rule in place that like mm-hmm. you are not going to contact your client 
And also, it's a really interesting assumption that is very white and not particularly cultural, which is why now there are rural clauses Mm -hmm. in codes of ethics that in smaller communities, in communities of color, so like being here in Portland, being a, a therapist of color in a smaller community of color, right? Like if I'm engaging with my community in an active way, my ability to avoid my client or avoid, you know, avoid seeing my clients in public, Mm -hmm. this is really challenging. And so it's just very interesting trying to figure out how to balance the history of harm, balancing, you know, the power dynamics with the fact that depending on the community that you're in, right, this code of ethic, it might not even make sense to be like, oh, you can't talk to your client for at least two years of like, oh, well, my client lives down the street from me. So, well, well, and I feel like that's so tied in to like this white supremacist definition of what it means to be like someone who heals. Mm. Right. That like, if you think about like even like bigger picture, like European communities, like not even going to like communities of color, right. We're like, there's a person who does healing work for the community. Like, that's their job. But that person isn't just like, okay, so, I, like, I healed you. So, like, we're just, like, we don't, we're not going to talk for, like, two years. <laughs> right? Right? Like, that's just not going to happen. Like, when we come to the community, like, bonfire, like, we don't know each other. Right? Cool. Like, that's for me to keep you safe. Right? Like, no, like. that's not how that works in actual healing spaces and actual small communities and i get why those protections are in place because there have been so many people particularly men who have abused their positions as healers to harm people but when you think about the larger historical and like contextual version or views of a healer it's like, this is a role I play in my community and everyone knows I'm the healer and everyone comes to me when they need healing, right? Like, it's not a yep. shameful, like, thing where, like, oh, you need to go see the healer? Oh, you're fucked up. Right. No. Like, it's a healthy thing that is done where you see the healer when you need healing. But American society and many, like, modern European societies have, like, made this role, like, a shameful thing. Like, when you can't handle your stuff, you talk to a therapist or a doctor or whatever. And then you also keep it a secret because you want to. And then also that provider is bound to keep your secrecy. And it becomes this weird dynamic that, like, oh, yeah, it's shameful to need healing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just all, you know, it's this interesting interplay of harm Mm -hmm. that white professionals have done to their clients um and so if we're talking about the history of social work so that's like the history of you know psychiatry mental health in this country um you know freud is sort of the main main dude yep his student carl jung um and in social work, social work has a very, very white beginning. Um, social work began with Jane Addams, who created the Hull House, 
um, which is which was a, a really famous settlement house. So essentially, Jane Addams was a single lady who uh, essentially, so at this time, particularly women who are single are need to be doing something. It's not necessarily appropriate at this time for women to be single, for women to be unmarried. Um, she's a spinster, essentially, um, who had nothing better to do with her time. And so there definitely were a lot of social ideas around what women are supposed to be doing when they are not busy being married. And I think we talked about this a little bit, actually, in another episode as well. So you've heard some of our thoughts about this. And so being a do-gooder is like a very socially acceptable activity for a spinster lady like Jane Addams to do. And so she woke up one day and was like, I really want to create a settlement house. And a settlement house is essentially a place inside of a community that is like wealthy ladies create and sort of use to do charity work. So Jane Adams was like, oh my gosh, I really just want to make one so badly. Um, she was just super into it. Um, and so she creates a settlement house in Chicago. And unlike other wealthy ladies who would like enter into communities and then leave them, Jane Adams moves in to this Chicago community. Mm -hmm. um, and the Chicago community is filled with immigrants. Um, it is not, there are not people of color mm -hmm. that they're serving. They are serving Italian immigrants, Greek immigrants, Irish immigrants. Um, so they move in. And, but the community around the whole house is not, um, it's not the most upscale place. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, socially and unacceptable behavior happening. Um, and so basically this do-gooder is like, okay, well, I'm going to come into your community and I'm going to give you things that you need. I'm going to fix this for you. So she moves in um, and other like donors also are allowed to use the house. They're allowed to live there. Um, and so eventually like 25 women move into this house and they start studying the people that live in this community. And I want to be clear, they are studying them. This is a center for research. Right. And the goal is that the Hull House is sort of like a, it's like a way station that rich white ladies get to come and interact with these real people, real community members. And so, um, and so like, it's, yes, it is intended to serve the community ish but really it's intended to serve these white ladies because they want to be helpful but not like but they don't want to like get their hands too dirty 
So this is really the beginning. Well, not the beginning, but like social work is founded on white saviorism. It's founded on nice, well-meaning white ladies who roll up into spaces where they're not invited. Nobody was like, dear Jane, we desperately need you. Come bring your settlement house here. Nah, nah, nah. Like she just rolled up. Ain't nobody invited her. And then she invited all of her, you know, all these other white ladies to come and observe and research these regular ass folks. And because she's offering them services that they can afford, they don't really have a lot of options. And so they don't have a lot of agency and they don't have a lot of power to say like, no, thank you. I don't really want to be like, I don't want to be experimented on. I don't want to be researched. Like I just really need, you know, I, I really need support for this health issue that I have or, you know, these, they're like these kids who need support because they are, you know, orphans or their parents are busy. You know, these are latchkey kids and they don't have anything better to do or whatever. Um, and there was a lot of work with kids, which is also, you know, maybe a little weird. And, Maybe. you know, they had lots of, like, they had kindergarten classes and, like, reading groups because we have to teach all these immigrant children how to speak English, right? And so there's, it's also, like, one of the roles of the whole house is, is all about um, assimilation because, obviously, we couldn't possibly have them speaking their own language. These little white children, no, no. Um, we have to make them American. Uh, and so, you know, she's, like, studying social illnesses like typhoid fever which is not a thing that people we really deal with anymore because we have vaccines except for a covid vaccine but we have all the other ones so typhoid fever is not really a challenge anymore um and then she's applauded for this action because everyone is like oh my gosh you've like saved these sad poor people and she like kind of did sort of she got a nobel peace prize actually um and her settlement house was not associated with religion, which was cool. But then, of course, there created this, like, she influenced this huge movement of settlement houses, which were definitely created around Christianity because obviously, right? And I think we also had another podcast episode. Maybe not. Maybe this is in our course. It's probably in our course. Um, we talked about it at some point um, about the relationship between Christianity and capitalism their friends those two things um and so yeah that's the origin of social work you know from then a lot of other terrible things happened for example the uh tuskegee syphilis experiment it was a clinical study that happened up until 1972 i'm gonna say that number again 1972 it started in 1932 that basically they, the United States uh, Public Health Service wanted to know, like, what would happen if we didn't treat syphilis? Like, what does it do? And so the federal government was like, hey, so they started testing black men. So they were like, hey, um, we're going to give you free health care. That's what they were told. Um, and so they took 600 poor black men um, and... Some of them had syphilis and then some of them were controls and they were told it was a six month. They were like, oh, we'll give you free health care and meals 
and burial insurance for participating in the study. And they're like, the study is only six months, but it actually lasted for 40 years and they lost funding. Um, and so basically they were given, they were given syphilis. None of the men were told that they were given syphilis and the study kept going, even though they didn't have funding. And so the men who are still in the study were never told that they would never get treatment for syphilis because they didn't have any money. The study didn't. And then once they figured out that penicillin treated syphilis, they also never gave them penicillin. Um, and they were told they were being treated for like some other thing. Mm-hmm. And they all like got really sick. And then they're like, oh, let's see what happens. Gross. Right. Which is also interesting in the sense of like greater European history, right? Where like from the 1930s to the 1970s, syphilis was not a new disease. Syphilis no. had been around for hundreds of years and actually had been very, very well studied. And this idea that, like, oh, we need to study syphilis because we don't know what happens to people when they have syphilis long term. It's just really. Again, interesting is not the right word, but it's like, but the white people know what happens when someone has syphilis long term. You can Google it, dear listener. Google it. Google it. What syphilis looks like when you've had it for years. It's it's horrible. There's a reason why with penicillin and other interventions, syphilis is not as nearly much of a problem as it was once upon a time. Thank God. Yes. Because it will eat your whole face. It's not great. But some people in 1930 are like, well, but how does syphilis affect black people? And it's like, uh, well, if you're going to be scientifically safe, let's assume that it affects them the same way it affects other people. White people, which we already know about because syphilis has been around for so long. There is no need, literally no need, to study how syphilis impacts black men. Because we know how syphilis impacts other people that we decide to be called white or whatever phrase you want to use. Like We know what syphilis does to people. But you know... IDK lol. Yeah. Gross. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I mean, this is just a little bit. Like, I don't want necessarily, you know, we don't want this whole thing to just be like a history lesson. But this is just a little bit. Right. About, you know, the history of medical communities, social work, mm-hmm. specifically psychiatry. I mean, we can also talk about, um, you know, mentioning psychiatry. The dude who invented um, group psychotherapy, J.L. Moreno, mm-hmm. um, did a whole study on prostitutes. And he was like, oh, these, like, no one, like, society doesn't give a shit about these women. Right. You know, so I'm going to study sex workers. Okay. And like nobody was worried about that. And 
I think what's really important and like the, I think the place that we're going with this is in general, mm-hmm. folks who enter, like, just because someone has entered a mental health profession does not necessarily mean that they are really that committed to helping you. Um, and that historically, that has certainly been true. But there's just this, like, there's a connection. Capitalism is always involved. Folks are not, like, anytime well-meaning folks roll up into a community, there is an impact. And there's a reason why they're there. And it's not just because they want to help people. That's not the reason. And uh, this is about consent. This is about the intersection between communities of color and poverty. And, you know, if we look at what Jane Addams did with, um, with European immigrants, mm-hmm. like, what are all these other settlement houses doing with communities of color? Not to mention, black social work jobs were very difficult to come by. For a long, long time, there was no social work training for folks of color. There were only two schools. I know one of them was the Atlanta School of Social Work. I don't remember the other one. Um, For a long, long time. Um, And, you know, there's also the the once, once like, desegregation was happening and Brown v. v Board of Ed and the Civil Rights Movement, then there's black social workers that are losing jobs because when we're talking about integration, when we're talking about like now it's illegal to keep black folks out of white spaces, white folks are still hella racist and not willing to enter black spaces. So the folks that are of the community are not then given the opportunity to support their own people. So then it's really harmful, you know, and at least in mental health, there's just a long, long history of coming in, doing research and experimentation and like seeing what stuff does meanwhile taking away opportunities taking away jobs taking away agency from the communities that they're supposed to be serving by being like well hey we offer this free service and then folks are like well we need the free service so i guess we will consent to being subjects of this study and then harm is done yeah i mean don't trust the government (laughs) (laughs) moral of the story always and forever but i think it's so important to interrogate even the idea of consent because who is defining the idea of consent it's the person who is proposing to do the harm right like it's it's never coming from the group that want like is saying like hey study us here's how we're going to consent to this like no it's always imposing from this government or this body that's saying like hey we want to study you but we want your consent about it and the group is always like uh i mean what happens if we don't do it it's like i mean nothing but you know right we won't give you what you need Right. We'll reward you if you do it. And so especially being 
a behavior scientist, which I am at my core, like the more I learn about these things, the more I get embedded in it. It's like so tainted to the point that it's not useful, like this data from any of these situations, right? In the sense that we're going to study you and people are going to be like, uh, okay, sure. Like, cause we don't feel like we can say no. And it's like, great. Cause we're going to tell you what consent means and doesn't mean. And if you don't like it, then that means you don't consent, but it also means you don't get any benefit from this. And it's like, okay, so I guess that means we should consent to what we're doing. Yeah. And then we wonder why the data is not useful. Mm. Like why we still are always like, well, but we need to study this and study this and study this contingency and like, how does this impact folks of color and how does this impact women? And it's like, oh, well, it could be that like when you put a population of study under duress and make them feel obligated to participate, the data you get from that is not useful. So then you need to do the research again with more. The idea is like do it again with more population, with more folks, with more different kinds of folks. But at the end of the day, if consent still means either you do what I want or you don't get included, then it's still research under the supervision of white supremacy. Mm. Yeah. And it's, well, and I think, you know, you know, part of me is like, okay, so why is this stuff important? And I think what's really important about this is like, because it still happens mm-hmm. all the time that there's so much power that's going on you know when folks of color are going to visit white healthcare professionals white mental health professionals um all of this still happens and there's a huge number like white health professionals and mental health professionals outnumber professionals of color in a huge way and there's a ton of gatekeeping also let's talk about access you know if we're talking about like people having access to the level of higher education required in order to enter these professionals and then access to afford the, the cost of supervision and then access to afford the cost to take the exam and then access to afford uh, the licensing fee. I like, okay, so straight up, so I'm going for licensure. I finally, finally made it. Um, yay. yay. And I just found out that, so on top of the cost of taking the exam, which is like $265 or something like that. Then the cost for my first, like my initial licensing fee is also $260. Yeah. Which I did not. Well, I don't remember reading that. I feel confident I did read it at one point, but I think I also had expectations about the money I would have now as opposed to three years ago. I don't know. But like, really? Yeah. And I think about that and I think about that during COVID and I think, right. And I think about all the level of privilege that I have that other folks do not have. I think about the fact that I have a spouse that also is able to work and write and all of these things. And I'm like, where are people getting the money to afford to get licensed? You know, and like the cost of and tons of professions have these kind of gatekeeping requirements, you know, or like continuing education costs, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of money that people pay to sit in a room. And these folks are student. I mean, they're essentially students, right? You're, 
the entry level for an unlicensed MSW. I mean, there are people out there who are like, oh, sure, we'll pay you $38,000 a year. And there are some folks that are going to be listening like, oh, my gosh, that's so much money. You have no idea what I could do with that. And then there are other folks who are like, how am I supposed to take $38,000 a year in a city like Portland, right? So I'm supposed to be paying like, I don't know, $1,400, $1, $1,600 a month in rent, if not more, easily could be paying more. But like that was, I chose a low number, you know, plus the cost of my car, plus, you know, water, gas and lights, plus, um, you know, gas money, right. Trying to pay off my student loans that it cost me to get this dang MSW. And then I'm trying to, it's like I have to. Right. And then, you know, paying for, you know, the cost of supervision, which is somewhere between 80 and $120 a week. Right. Yeah. And all of that's happening on $38,000 a year. And you're overworked, hella overworked in this nonprofit job where they're like, we're going to, you know, give you absolutely no resources. And you're supposed to also attend continuing education courses so that you can spend, you know, four or $500. Let's talk about somatic experiencing. I'm calling it out. $890 per module. That is the early bird rate for four days. $890. Do you know how many modules? I don't know why anyone know this. The number of modules to become finished, like to finish your somatic experiencing training, mm-hmm. there are eight. You do three in beginning year, three in intermediate year, and then two in advanced year. And in advanced year, you cannot have the same trainer that you did in beginning or intermediate. And there are very few level trainers. So typically you have to fly. And pay for a hotel and all of that. Right. And that's if you live in a city where they have an existing cohort. Otherwise, you have to travel. How is anybody doing that? No, I'm saying EMDR. $1,500. Two weekends. Like, that is so much money. That is cost prohibitive. And so then we talk about, like, the folks who actually need the treatment Mm -hmm. can't afford to get it. Because the amount of money you have to charge as a therapist has to go up. Because otherwise, how am I supposed to reimburse myself for all this money? And that doesn't include, right, EMDR. That didn't include, when I got trained in that, that didn't include my flight. That didn't include my hotel. That didn't include my rental car. That didn't include the mandatory textbooks that I had to buy. That didn't include the, how much was that, like, the buzzer thing? Oh, the tappers? That was $120. Yeah. $120. Mine was more than that. Oh, well, you got ripped off. Right? Did I get ripped off? I feel like mine was like 249 or something. But anyway, right? Like Mm. all these things cost all this money. You know, even if you did like a motivational interviewing training, which is basic, (laughs) basic mental health. And you got to like pay all this money to go through these things, right? Trauma-focused CBT, whatever, whatever the thing is that you choose, whatever your specialty is, Shay just rolled her eyes i see you um and so then the folks that we are actually out here trying to serve particularly Mm -hmm. social workers because oftentimes you know social workers we are the do-gooders right those are the well-meaning white ladies that's why people get in this profession is because they are typically well-meaning and white there's a history of it trying to roll up into spaces where nobody invited them and then we're like sure we can provide you with this healing treatment but we have to charge you X number of dollars an hour so that we can pay to live. Right. It's crazy. Absolutely. 
harm y'all harm in mental health this is real you know yeah the multiple levels of harm where it's like the the amount of training that you need to remain competent in the field and then also pay your bills the divide is so great because like every every profession has this mandate that you help like the fucking hillary clinton thing of like help as many as you can as long as you can for like what you know like whatever bullshit right the goal is you help as many humans as you can but her emails but her emails but anyway i already went to grad school i'm already in debt for that also my undergrad and then all this other training to provide the best like treatment that i can but then also people who need it the most can't afford it and so then what do i do uh I see some of them, and then I charge other people what I'm actually worth. And then those people, who are always white, get mad that they're yep. charged more than other people. Because even facts. though they can afford it. And so then you just feel trapped as a provider. Where it's like, I, I also need to like win capitalism in the sense of, like, I need to not drown. So I can help other people. Yeah. Well, it's like if I'm out of the industry, how am I serving? And I have to pay like bare minimum. I have to pay, right, because we have to meet continuing education requirements Mm -hmm. every year for every two years. So like I have to spend the money Mm -hmm. in order to remain eligible to maintain my license. And I have to pay like relicensing fees and all that nonsense. But it's like so I have to do all these things in order to get to stay in the field. I have to pay all this money. And I want to be clear, licensure is important Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, it helps keep consumers safe. You know, that there is a place you can go when somebody is acting a fool and doing something that's inappropriate. There's a place, there are people that you can call and you can file a complaint and that person can lose their license and this and that and the third thing, you know, or they can be reprimanded formally and all that other stuff, right? And it's public. So you can go, you like you're a mental health provider, like you can go and you can look up their license number in their state and you can see, you can see whether or not they're active or inactive. You can see whether or not they're licensed. So if somebody's saying they're licensed, but maybe they're not actually, right? Like you can, you can see that and you can see, do they have any like sanctions against them? Is there anything pending? Like you can, you can see all the information. And so there is protection for folks. And so I want to be clear that I am not anti the licensure process. Although it's very capitalistic and there's a lot of gatekeeping. Um, And, you know, how are we supporting the community, especially social work, when we're rolling up into communities and saying, here, we're we're here to help you, you know, community-based mental health care of like, hey, you know, come on in. And then if those spaces are not trauma-informed or whatever, you know, if those spaces oftentimes, let's be so real about it, that's where new therapists go. Right? Those are the spaces that are willing to hire new therapists. That's where they have to go. Yeah. They have to go nonprofit agency work. Yeah. No, I will say that part of my own personal undoing of my work is I started out serving a population that I was not qualified to serve because I was fresh out of grad school. I didn't and couldn't understand the complex trauma of the youth I was working with, especially it was like mostly teenage boys. Like I didn't know what I was doing. 
but it was treated like it was okay that I didn't know what I was doing because the population I worked yep. with was so hard. So vulnerable. So hard. So vulnerable. And the reason why I use the word so hard is like as I get older and in the profession and in the field, I started to understand those kids. And I was like, you're just babies. Like you're just little nuggets who need love and need to not be more traumatized than you already have been. But the amount of like time and wisdom and training that it takes to get to that point means that I don't take those jobs anymore because they don't pay enough. And what I mean pay enough is like for me to pay my student loans and still be able to pay my rent. Yes. Let us be clear. Neither of us are like rolling in it. Uh, no. Not at all. Not close. Um, yeah. And I'm like, we do what we can in terms of, you know, pro bono clients and get, you know, it is written in my code of ethics as mm. a social worker that I am advocating for, that I am advocating for oppressed populations. Yeah. It's written in, it's like part of my job. I have to, mm-hmm. I want to, but I have to also, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't, it doesn't balance out. You know, and let's talk about insurance. It costs so much money to be able to take insurance. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just real facts, y'all. It is expensive to be able to accept insurance. Right. It is. And, and the process of going through it, of getting to take insurance the paneling and all of that stuff and then once you do take insurance there's the constant haggling with insurance companies over what they will cover and it's usually like a very certain number of sessions it's a usually you know a very specific style of therapy you're required to provide clients with a diagnosis which uh stays with them forever so it's not helpful all the time to be diagnosing clients right a medical label which let's talk about the power and privilege in that that i can see you one time for an intake session and then put a label on your whole life forever and be like i know about you i know who you are like you have this thing you are this right unbelievable just to be able to get care right and we have to do it otherwise insurance companies aren't going to cover it and so then you know, clients have no power in that. No. There's no agency there. There's no consent. Speaking of consent, right? And then, you know, insurance companies half the time are like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, we'll cover that service six months later. Yeah. And so, you know, there's why so many therapists, at least in, in Oregon, like so many therapists don't take OHB. Because it's terrible. Because yeah. it doesn't cover anything. Yep. And so then you're, you know, in a place of, like, really the people who most need it. The people who are, you know, needing the support can't get it. It just feels like this big, giant wheel of harm that goes back to, you know, a couple, you know, goes back to, like, a hundred and some odd years of, you know, white men who can't keep it in their pants and insist on having sex with their clients to, you know, white women moving themselves into places and 
taking away jobs and resources from communities who need them more and this blurry blurry concept of consent of like well if you agree to do what I want then I'll give you what I have just completely gross and power laden it's the same right you know of like if you agree to do what I want right if you let me give you this label then I'll give you what I have absolutely and also this element of like we already talked about that needing healing is shameful in some way right that like needing to be healed means that you need to seek out some sort of expert which is on its own fine like every culture has its version of a healer like we already talked about but I need to seek out a healer and then I have to be worthy enough to have enough money to pay them to help me because if I can't pay them to help me and then it becomes this whole capitalistic thing of like, oh, well, then the healer can't pay their bills and then the healer can't heal, you know, as opposed to this fundamental piece of our community, which should be like someone whose job is to heal should be able to heal whoever needs it. Right. And I think most of us, even when we hate socialism or whatever, I think we can fundamentally understand that, like, if you fucking keel over, whether you're bleeding profusely or having a heart attack, and there's a physician in the room, everyone understands intuitively that that physician has a responsibility to help you, right? Like, that's part of, like, the do no harm. That's part of ethics codes. Like, there's a reason why people who are in healing professions can't opt out when someone is suffering in front of them. However, if you're not suffering enough, you must be willing and able to pay that person to help you. And it's such, and mm-hmm. go for it. No, Make I just it's it just feeds into that reactive nature that we have in capitalism of like instead of being proactive, instead of being like noticing, instead of like noticing when someone is struggling and helping them, we wait until it's an emergency. And then we help them, but then we extract money or time or resources from them. Well, and that is like Western medicine in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, is that it's really wonderful for solving acute challenges, you know, mm-hmm. of like, do you need a, you know, do you need an, some sort of implant? Do you need something cut off or removed? Mm-hmm. Great. Perfect. You know, do you need something prevented? Do you need, you know, like not so good yeah and i think we're really seeing this and i think this is actually a really prescient conversation when we're talking about covid19 covid is really exposing the inequities of the healthcare system and the mental health system you know that i have had folks come to me and be like hey can you help me can you support me and i'm like i am doing everything that i can to make my services I'm taking on free clients I'm taking you know I'm doing everything that I can and at the end of the day like I still have to pay my rent because my you know my landlord is not putting my rent on hold and so you know and I've got lots of clients who are like I can't afford this level of care that we were doing before Mm -hmm. and I'm like yeah perfect I'm happy to accommodate that I don't think that this is a time where anyone should lose access to mental health care you know this time is too stressful it is in some way traumatizing for everyone let alone 
you know, the folks who have also, you know, lost their jobs or essential workers and put themselves in danger, you know, every single day to provide essential services. I mean, my goodness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we talk about with COVID, you know, folks who are unemployed then don't have health insurance because we tie insurance to employment, right? So the amount of wellness that you are allowed to have is directly proportional to the amount of work you provide the system. Mm -hmm. How messed up is that? And so folks are dying because they're like, I can't get a doctor to see me because I don't have insurance. And people are like, well, I guess you have to die from this disease then. Sorry Mm -hmm. about you. And, you know, and we're seeing that populations of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. And let's be clear, we have to talk about the systems involved that are making that happen. Mm -hmm. That this is not, you know, oh, well, just black and brown people are like irresponsible and just go outside without social distancing. Like, no, 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 no. No. No, because we're talking about deep systemic inequities because black and brown folks are much less likely to have health insurance. They are more likely to work in essential jobs. They are, you know, have higher rates of poverty, right? Economic instability, right? All of these things, this, these racist systems, you know, like all fuel why black and brown folks are disproportionately impacted. It's right. not just because, like, black and brown folks, like, do unsafe things. Like, no. No, and I think the other thing we can't rule out when you look at why black and brown folks die disproportionately from COVID is black and brown folks are disproportionately likely to die from respiratory illnesses. Hmm. So like you mentioned lots of like reasons potentially why, but at the end of the day, shouldn't we be so invested in understanding why is it that black and brown folks die because they can't breathe more than white folks? Like, isn't that worth looking into? Like, on its own, like, aside from other reasons, like, aside from, like, a quarantine or an epidemic, like, whatever, right? Like, even outside of that, black and brown folks are more likely to die because they can't breathe. What's that about? Mm. Eric Garner. Mm Mm-hmm. I just, you said that, and I was just, that's what I was struck with, is just, I can't breathe. can't Um, breathe. And... Well, and if we talk about health disparities, and we talk Mm -hmm. about this a lot in our course, we have an entire module on, um, on data. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we know that black and brown folks, uh, that there are less, there are fewer research studies, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we think about all the things that we just talked about that like white folks roll up only to research black and brown folks. And yet somehow we don't even have enough usable data, which is ridiculous considering you know the insertion right. of white saviors into black and brown communities and mm-hmm. that's like a whole conversation as well about white saviorism um and then you know we know that not only do we have not en- we don't have enough studies so we don't know and understand about these health disparities which cost the united states billions of dollars a year it's so weird that we have no motivation to solve these health disparities, even though they cost billions of dollars. I think it's $330 billion a year. I think that's the number. Um, that's true. That's so many billions of dollars. It's so weird that we're not motivated to fix that. That's so much money. Yeah. I mean, the 
the amount of investment that we have in health is very clearly based, like we already talked about, on the health and well-being of white folks. Like, when we talk about when things are safe to resume social distancing and everything, I always am really clear in the hearing that it's about for white folks, right? Because we're not even having a discussion that COVID-19 kills black folks at a higher rate than white folks. Like, we're not even, like, talking about that, like, openly, like, as a fact. So when we want to talk about, hey, in, like, two or three weeks, like, we're going to be ready to, like, stop social distancing and, like, do all this, like, oh, because we're going to be okay with how many black folks are going to die at that point. Yeah. Well, and also I saw a fantastic meme today that was like, you know, so let me be clear, like when I'm, you know, on native land protesting a pipeline that destroys the environment, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be shot at with rubber bullets and hosed with freezing water uh, Mm -hmm. and arrested and all those things. But when I'm protesting social distancing, which saves lives, uh, there's with holding giant weapons, huge guns that have the capacity to Mm -hmm. carry lots and lots of bullets. Mm -hmm. That's not a problem. And that I will make it home safely. No worries. That's weird. Really, really strange. It's the privilege of whiteness. Yeah. All right. On that unhappy note, mm-hmm. I feel like we did it. Mental health became healthcare. I mean, mental health is health. It's so weird. This idea that we split up like mind and body, like your brain is not inside your body. Like, where do people think that it is? Like, it's not. It's all in right? our Right? Like, it's not like floating, like outside your head. Like, it's in. It's inside. It's in there. Like, they're. <laughs> They're attached. It's it's in my face, but it doesn't affect the rest of my body, Rebecca. Like, clearly. It's just my face. Like, that's it. It's crazy to me. Like, it's it's in in your neck. There's a connector. Like, we have a thing that connects it. It's like a tube that connects your brain to the rest of it. It's inside the whole thing. I think it's really rude of you to mention my neck. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like thinking about it. It's true. No facts. So, um... Yeah, so I think we're going to leave it there. Unresolved. Unresolved, yes, as always. That is how anti-racist work goes. Mm -hmm. Will never be resolved. So, yeah. We thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you being here uh, and supporting Mm -hmm. the podcast. Please like, please share with your friends. Please download, please support us and follow us on social media you can follow us uh, arctic llc you can mm-hmm. also follow the podcast stop saying woke um and you know if you're interested in the offerings that we have i think we mentioned it maybe briefly a couple times but we have a course called uh how to be less harmful training white helpers to serve bipoc clients and it is really geared actually towards service professionals and so if you are in a helping profession of any kind you'll definitely find some value in this course and we go into the things that we've been talking about we go into great detail um and we've gotten a ton of wonderful feedback that it's enormously supportive and helpful for folks so 
feel free to check that out. Hit up our website, www.ar-tic.org. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, haikus, limericks, info at ar-tic.org, I would love to hear some complaint poetry. That would be beautiful. Uh, I'm anticipating the joy in advance that I will receive <laughs> from hearing that you disagree with everything that we said, but in with, a rhyming with, yeah. fashion. With bated breath. Yeah. Wait for it. I'm excited. Um, yeah. Well, it's been fun, y'all. Catch you next time. Yeah. See y'all later. Bye. Bye.